From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. You know, just have all my surrounded by all my books that we talked about last week. You know, I, I know. Worried, worried they'll fall on me. I know. I'm just. <laughs> I keep looking at my Amazon wish list right now and figuring out what I'm going to purchase next. So I know. And, and then, and then, what's terrible is they keep coming up with you know suggestions based on your searches. There's even more books coming out. <laughs> I know. It's, <laughs> ones it's never added. ending. I know ones I've added to my wish list. Yeah, no, I, I keep looking at that. Uh, I still don't even know if it's released yet. It pops up every now and then. The uh, the one book that was uh, done recently on Walt Disney Studios, uh, kind of celebrating the history. I think D twenty three was part of putting it, it together. Oh, oh, you don't know that story. <laughs> it was um, it was published and immediately pulled. What it was pulled? It was pulled. Why? Yeah, if you what didn't, um, if you didn't pre-order it, even some of the pre-orders got pulled before they were shipped. Mine, I pre-ordered mine, and it shipped, and I got it right before it. Mine got out the door before um, Disney pulled them all back. But any reason why? We don't. You know, I've not heard anything official. Uh, there's a rumor, and I, I, I've gone through the book. There's a photo of, um, on the Disneyland show, we talked about C.V. Wood mm-hmm. and and how, uh, you know, he, he helped, you know, he was instrumental in the construction of Disneyland, but then he had a falling out with the Disney company. Uh, you know, I in interviewing like um, Rolly Crump and talking with Bob Gurr and others, um, they don't have a high opinion of C.V. Wood, neither yeah. did Walt nor Roy. Well, there's a photo of him in the book. And there's, a, there's also someone else in the photo, and I can't think of who it is off the top of my head. And they're also not... Um, they're also not in in favor of the company, uh-huh. at least back then, because of something they did. So the the suspicion was that th- uh, because of that photo, um, the book was pulled. But oh. I've never heard I've never heard anything official. Yeah, well, that's but, sad. Um, so it, it got me really excited because I know uh, uh, Becky Klein was doing a lot of the work for it and yeah yeah she she was the author and which surprises me that the book would have been pulled for that reason huh well but shoot that just ruined my night (laughs) i know but but i have one (laughs) so next time you know next time you're up, up here i'll um 
I, I'll let you look at. Oh it. yeah, no, I love I love to go through it. <laughs> but you know, I'm even afraid, like like if anybody associated with the book is like at the Walt Disney Family Museum, I don't even want to bring it there for them to autograph because I'm worried they'll grab it from me <laughs> <laughs> and say, "This is, you can't have this." <laughs> yeah, good good call. Just keep it at home in a uh, in a sealed case. Yeah, yeah, yeah but. So and I have not heard if there are any plans to re-edit and re-release mm-hmm. that book. Uh, I hope so. There needs to be more out there on the uh, the Walt Disney Studios. So oh, I I agree. Uh, that's one of the things that's really lacking yeah. is a real comprehensive history of the of the studio. Yeah, and at the least, I just want a nice picture book of all the sites around the studio. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's nice looking at my photos from the times that we've been there, but. You know, I, I I want a book. I want something I can set out on a coffee table and yeah. admire every now and then. Oh, well, maybe maybe you and I just are going to have to write that book. <sighs> one day, one day, yes, one day. Maybe that's the book that's inside us. Yes, say there's a book inside of everybody. For most people, the book should stay there. <laughs> but may, maybe um, maybe that's that's our book. I I, I wouldn't say no to it. <laughs> Oh well, well, in well, in in this episode of connecting with Walt, Craig and I, speaking of the studios, we're going to continue our look at the history of Walt Disney and his animated films. You might remember back in episode twenty-two, entitled Walt Disney's first studio, Laughograms. Craig and I talked about the beginning of Walt's professional animation career and the launch of his Laughogram studio when he was just 20 years old. That always makes me realize just how insignificant oh, yeah. I was at 20. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> after a year and a half of producing several shorts and doing everything he could to make his studio a success, Walt was forced to declare bankruptcy and made the decision to seek his fortune out west. And we ended our story in August of 1923, when a 21-year-old Walt Disney stepped off the train in Los Angeles in his checkered coat and mismatched slacks with a pasteboard suitcase filled with a shirt, two undershorts, two pairs of socks, and drawing supplies, $40 and brimming full of dreams and confidence. So when Walt arrived in Los Angeles, he was met by his brother Roy. And Roy remembered that day. Um, I met Walt at the station, and he was carrying a cheap suitcase that contained all of his belongings. Walt recalled, I landed in Hollywood in August 1923 with a two-year-old suit of clothes, a sweater, a lot of drawing materials, and $40. Also in my suitcase was the last of the fairy tale reels we had made, Watt was referring to Alice's Wonderland he and his animators had made at the Laughogram studio in Kansas City, Missouri, and the print of that film had not been fully completed. Walt was happy with his decision to not accept a cartooning job that he had been offered in Kansas City and relocating to Hollywood rather than New York, because Walt reasoned, the pull toward Hollywood became strong. Animation was big there, and if I couldn't be successful at that, I wanted to be a director or a writer. So in 1923, Los Angeles was the fifth largest city in the United States, with a population just short of 250,000. 
Although it had scarcely been 10 years since filmmakers began sitting up in California, Los Angeles and Hollywood movie making was fast becoming an industry, with 58 motion picture studios and 250 production companies. So this indeed seemed like the perfect place for Walt Disney and his aspirations. Now, since Roy was still battling tuberculosis, he was living west of Los Angeles at the Veterans Hospital in Sattel. So Walt moved in with his uncle, Robert Samuel Disney, who had retired and moved from Kansas City to Los Angeles a few years prior, and his second wife, um, Charlotte, and Uncle Robert and his 35-year-old Charlotte, who was five months pregnant with their son, Robert Jr., lived with their German shepherd, Peggy, in a one-story craftsman bungalow at 4406 Kingswell Avenue. Now, Craig, you have may recently have heard that Uncle Robert's home uh, made the news when the new owners requested a demolition permit for the home yes. with plans to build a larger residence. Yeah, um, in November 2016, the City of Los Angeles Survey LA program declared the property was eligible for the National Register of Historic Places for its role as Walt Disney's first studio in California. So as of this recording, um, the same city planning department is now considering issuing a permit for its destruction. So updates on the fate of this house um, we'll share here on Connecting with Walt and over on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. Yeah, hopefully it stays standing. <laughs> so it'd be a real big shame to uh, lose it. But at the same time, you know, we can't can't keep every single piece of history out there. Some things no, have to come and, and go. Yeah, and the garage has been moved. Mm -hmm. And so that is on display. And um, so people can visit that. And tour it. So, and we talked about that on the Disneyland show a while back. Um, it's not terribly far from Disneyland, actually. How far? But <laughs> so anyway. But back to our story. Um, Walt paid Robert and Charlotte a weekly rent of five dollars, but Walt relied on Roy and Roy's government pension for financial support. Um, Walt would later joke, "The government did play a part in subsidizing my early career efforts in Los Angeles because my brother was discharged from the service with a partial disability allowance. I think it was about sixty-five dollars a month. My brother and I lived on that." Now, Roy immediately suggested to Walt that he begin seeking employment, even if it meant returning to cartooning. However, Walt was not enthusiastic with Roy's suggestion and said, No, I am too late for cartoons. I should have started six years ago. I don't see how I can top those New York boys now. Now, in later years, Walt would state, when I got to Hollywood, I was discouraged with animation. I figured I had gotten into it too late. I was through with the cartoon business. So despite his failure in Kansas City, Walt wasn't discouraged. Instead, he was ready to enter the filmmaking industry. One of the first things he did was to purchase a Pathé camera for $200, and he began visiting potential distributors with his copy of Alice's Wonderland. And Walt also maintained a correspondence with Margaret Winkler in the hopes of continuing her interest in Alice's Wonderland. 
Now, Margaret Winkler, after working at Warner Brothers for seven years, had started her own cartoon distributorship company and was a distributor of two popular series, Out of the Inkwell and Felix the Cat. So, Craig, are you familiar with um, those two cartoon series? Uh, just very slightly, uh, you know. I I was more familiar with Felix the Cat until the first time I think uh, you and I uh, started talking about Out of the Inkwell, and then I went and uh, researched that a little bit more. But yeah, no, I I for some reason I even remember Felix uh, from years back. I don't I don't know why I would have been uh, been looking up information on Felix when I was younger, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. they were still rerunning these. Because when I was a boy, there wasn't a lot of material for television. Yeah. And so, you know, the the afternoon, you know, local cartoon shows where it would be, you know, Captain Satellite or Captain Mitch. You know how they do, you know, yeah. those kinds of shows and, you know, kiddie shows. And then they would show cartoons. They didn't have a lot of cartoons, you know, back in the, the early 60s to yeah. show. So they were still showing these on TV. It was out of the inkwell with Popo the Clown, I remember. Yeah. The funniest yeah. clown who ever came to town. And, and Felix the Cat. Well, that's um, was still running. Like for me, I mean, I grew up on watching, uh, you know, obviously Looney Tunes, Disney cartoons, but then also Popeye mm-hmm. and all yes. these other shows that still uh, still were aired. So it, it's kind of funny. I I hear through the Universal show that I host, I hear a lot of feedback uh, in regards to one of the islands at Islands of Adventure, Toon Lagoon, that all of these. All these comics and cartoons that are featured in this area, no one understands who they are anymore, and they don't—they just don't get it. And I mean, I guess, I guess I grew up on them, and that's why I still know them. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, I like look at it. I'm like, oh, well, how does that not motivate you if you don't know who these characters are? If your kids don't mo- know who they are, how how are you not like motivated to go home and learn about them and teach your kids about them? Um, so. Yeah, no, I, I, more people should take the time to learn about everything in the past. I mean, I guess that's why we're here talking about oh, everything today, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, so definitely folks will um, want to Google out of the inkwell and Felix yeah. the Cat, because I think you're going to better understand what we're going to be talking about in the next few episodes yeah. of this series here, because these had a tremendous influence on what Walt is going to do. Absolutely. Um, Now, Walt had to be very careful in his correspondence with Miss Winkler. On his newly designed letterhead, Walt expressed nothing but confidence and professionalism. At no time did he mention the bankruptcy of Laughagram's studio. Walt explained his move from Kansas City to Los Angeles was to take advantage of the availability of better facilities and more experienced talent. Now, Margaret Winkler continued to express express interest in her replies, but she wanted to see results. In her reply, she stated, We have been corresponding with each other since your first letter of May 14th. It seems to me that this is about all it has amounted to. She wanted to see Alice's Wonderland. Now, as they say, timing is everything, and Walt couldn't have timed his correspondence with Margaret Winkler more perfectly. Ms. Winkler was the distributor of the most prestigious cartoon series at the time, and we were just talking about it, Pat Sullivan's Felix the Cat. 
and she was currently in the middle of a contract dispute with Pat Sullivan, and her distributorship of Felix the Cat could be in jeopardy. Also, Max Fleischer, the creator of the Out of the Inkwell series, was starting his own production company, so it was only a matter of time before Miss Winkler lost out, lost um, Out of the Inkwell series. So Miss Winkler was looking for another series in case the worst happened when Walt contacted her about Alice's Wonderland. So Walt sent her the, the copy of Alice's Wonderland, and after she finally saw it, Miss Winkler was optimistic and sent a telegram to Walt offering him a contract. Now, Walt had the exact opposite situation of that in Kansas City. He had a distributor, but this time he had did not have a studio, he didn't have a staff, and he didn't have any films. And because Alice's Wonderland was still embroiled in a litigation surrounding the bankruptcy of Laughagram's studio, it could only be used as a sample and not for public exhibition. So in her contract, um, Ms. Winkler's terms called for 12 films with $1,500 for the first six films, which in those days, you know, 1923, a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah after which she could either exercise or drop her option for the remaining six. Now, the first film was to be delivered by December 15th, which was in just a short two months, along with the negative and a poster sketch. Walt was delighted and caught off guard. He immediately wired his acceptance, but stated he could not deliver the first short until January 1st. And that evening, Walt took a bus out to Sotel to talk to Roy, who, and by the time Walt had arrived, Roy was fast asleep. Now, looking back, Roy described that evening, I was sleeping on a typical porch type of ward out there in the old Sotel hospital. Numbers of beds, all in a string. He wasn't allowed in, but when you know the place, you can always get in. Walt found his way to my bed. It was 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and he shaked me awake and showed me the telegram of acceptance of his offers. He said, what can I do now? Can you come out of here and help me to get this started? Now, Walt recalled sitting on Roy's bed and saying, we're in. It's a deal. 1,500 smackers are real. And let's go, Roy. <laughs> Two <laughs> little different stories yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Um, Roy reacted with his typical caution. On one hand, he questioned if they really could produce a cartoon series, but on the other, Roy wanted a job that would allow him to finally marry Edna Francis, and his tuberculosis was preventing him from obtaining an office job. Now, Walt used the selling skills that would serve him well throughout his life to convince Roy to go into business with him. And as Walt told it, I talked Roy into going in with me. Roy always had been in sympathy with what I was trying to do. So although Roy didn't know anything about the motion picture business, we went into partnership to fill the Winkler order for my cartoons. Walt and Roy agreed to a 50-50 split. And with Walt doing all the artwork and Roy acting as the business manager... Roy left the hospital the next day. He and Walt were partners in a studio with a contract to make a cartoon series. 
Now, back in October, Walt had sold Alexander Pantages, Pantages of the Los Angeles Pantages Theater on the idea of a little topics of the day joke reel for his theater. And it was then Walt realized he could no longer maintain an animation studio in his uncle's garage. So he had rented space in the back of an office of the real estate company of McCrane Abernathy at 4651 Kingswell Avenue, just two and a half blocks west of Uncle Robert's house for $5 a month. Walt borrowed $75 from his Kansas City friend Carl Stalling to finance the setting up of the studio. So Walt dropped his idea for the Pantages joke reel, and he and Roy immediately went to work on the Alice series. They searched for financing and contacted the family of their original Alice, Virginia Davis, to move west and reprise her role, and hired their first studio employee. At the same time, Margaret Winkler prepared a sales contract requiring delivery of the first Alice cartoons by January 2nd, excuse me, 1924, and increased her option to 24 additional cartoons, a series of 12 reels for 1925 and a series of 12 for 1926. And she also asked Walt to send photographs and biographies of himself and Virginia Davis, who Margaret had presumed would continue in the role of Alice and insisted upon it in her contract. Now, Roy was unsuccessful in applying for bank loans as the lenders believed an unproven cartoon series from a new studio was too much of a risk. So Roy and Walt approached Uncle Robert with a request for a loan, but he was unwilling, having heard that Walt had never repaid a $60 loan from older brother Ray. Uncle Robert did agree to witness the signing of the contracts for Walt and Roy. On October 16th, Walt and Roy decided on a name for their fledgling studio, Disney Brothers Studio. Their one employee... Miss Kathleen G. Dollard, a 16-year-old young woman who lived two miles from the studio, was hired to ink and paint cells. I see. That's amazing to me that right right there from the back, you know, only one ink and painter helping out with all this. I know. And and Walt did all the drawing and all the animating, you know, everything. It's incredible. Yeah. Now, now, Walt and Roy also took the time to do some investigation into the background of Margaret Winkler's company and requested a confidential bank report. Everything they learned was positive. So on October 24th, Walt wrote to Miss Winkler agreeing to the terms of the contract, including the December 15th delivery date, and informing her the first cartoon in the series would be Alice's Day at Sea and that the production was already underway. Virginia Davis's mother was delighted at the prospect of her daughter starring in the Alice series. She had brought Virginia out to Hollywood that past August to try and break into films, but could not get an appointment with any studio. Walt offered Virginia a graduated yearly contract with a monthly salary of $100 for the first two months and a raise of $25 every two months until month nine, when her salary would level off at $200. Walt also offered a monthly salary of $250 for the second series of cartoons. Now, Virginia's father, he was a traveling 
furniture salesman, so the move to California would not negatively affect his work. And also, Virginia had almost died from a serious bout of pneumonia, and the doctors had advised her parents to take Virginia to dry country. So the Davises happily accepted Walt's terms and began planning their move to Hollywood. So here is where it all began. Not with a mouse, as Walt often said, but with a little girl named Alice in 1924. Walt and Roy had a studio, a staff of one, and a cartoon, (laughs) well, in Virginia, too, and a cartoon film series lasting three and a half years that would grow into becoming one of the greatest media empires in the world. Although the series was officially named Alice in Cartoonland, it would always be referred to as the Alice Comedies or simply Alice. As is common with most new ventures, it got off to a rough start. Walt and Roy were working on a shoestring budget with minimal resources. The first two films were completely created by Walt, doing all the animation, and he directed the live-action scenes, and Roy did double duty as the business manager and running the camera, in contrast to Alice's Wonderland, in which seven artists produced the animation and backgrounds. Since live-action was Easier, faster, and cheaper to produce, the early Alice comedies had significantly more live action than animation. Other than Virginia Davis, the cast was recruited from the neighborhood. Yeah, and of course, this wouldn't be the only time in Walt Disney's life where he realized that live action was easier, faster, and cheaper to produce. So, right. um, yeah, always always stick with the basics, right? That's right. And, and he always comes back around again, yep. Yep. as we see in his career. Now, Alice's Day at Sea arrived at Winkler's New York office 11 days late on December 26th. Miss Winkler immediately sent off a telegram to Walt requesting the positive and negative raw footage be shipped to her office, explaining, We believe same can possibly be improved by re-editing here. All our films are recut in New York. Now, in this film, Alice's Day at Sea, Alice's dog drives his mistress to the Santa Monica Beach in a child's racing car, When she arrives, Alice meets an old sailor who recounts how his sailing ship sank in a storm. Then an animated sequence depicts the shipwreck. Wishing she were a sailor, Alice falls asleep and dreams she has gone to the bottom of the sea, and in an animated sequence meets a number of sea creatures, including a catfish family, a sea lion, and an elephant fish. And I pronounce those words that way because these were literally, these were cats that were fish. This was a lion that lived in the sea. I I couldn't figure out the elephant fish for the life of me. Um, A large fish swallows Alice, and she escapes the fish only to be captured by a giant octopus. And Alice wakes up from her dream and has a good laugh. Now, Craig, in our... In episode 22, we we talked about Alice's Wonderland. So now, after we've seen Alice's Day at Sea, how do you how do you compare these two? Um, okay, so in my opinion, where uh, Alice's Wonderland is is iconic, um, it, it really is what the whole start of it 
still showing off Walt Disney with Alice and, uh, you know, just going through and seeing the whole procedure, all the characters coming to life, and then finally Alice going to her Wonderland. Like, that is all just, you know, it's amazing to still watch even today. Um, Alice, Alice's Day at Sea, though, is just... <laughs> it's definitely worth a watch for anyone i mean the whole sequences in the beginning uh with the dog um it's just kind of weird um (laughs) to say i thought it was hilarious it is (laughs) it's just uh you know you you already mentioned we we just briefly went back and forth saying the live action was easier faster cheaper to produce uh this this is the exact testament um to to that statement uh it's i mean the first almost four minutes of the entire uh comedy is all live action and just really goofy you can tell it just done on the cheap uh crazy shots of alice and the dog riding in a car down the middle of the road and then somehow landing on a beach and then (laughs) even the first animation that pops up into it is really rough i mean it, it looks like a a child almost did it just mm-hmm. uh, on a chalkboard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah. And you know, then once once the ship sinks and Alice gets under, and uh, you know, all the all the techniques are employed to to have Alice interacting with with the animated characters and you know the the layering of the cells and the film and all that. You know, then it it, it does become wildly more entertaining but uh you you can definitely tell where uh with this cartoon for me in particular that uh these these comedies thrived when they were when they blended the live action and the animation and it was just a little too heavy-handed on the live action portions uh that involved no animation at all but again budget you can't you can't have everything back then in those (laughs) days your budget and one person doing yeah. it all, basically. Uh, and and this is worth seeing just because it's one of the few films where Walt did all the drawing yeah. and did all the animating. We don't have a lot of that. And honestly, so. the, the animation is very good in it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, no one would ever say that Walt is the best animator <laughs> in the world. He's... <laughs> He's not. Um, no, and Walt, and Walt admitted that. Yeah, yeah, many but, times. But the animation in Alice's Day at Sea, uh, while crude, is still whimsical. Um, the characters are, are well thought out, and uh, there, there's a lot of personality in it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into that about yeah. animation personality or personality animation in, in a bit. And yeah, and you can already see it starting. Yeah. In here, I mean, you can definitely see the roots of of Walt Disney and uh, and and why he became great yes. in the animation industry. Completely agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned, Miss Winkler had the film recut, but she was still disappointed with it. Um, she wrote Walt in January. I would suggest you inject as much humor as you possibly can. Miss Winkler also asked Walt to sell her the negative of Alice's Wonderland as emergency backup against future uncertainties, which was impossible because Walt was no longer the legal owner of that film. In his enthusiasm to present himself in the most positive light possible with Margaret Winkler, 
Walt had not mentioned this in his correspondence, and this would later lead to an air of mistrust between the Disney Brothers Studio and Winkler Productions. Now, around this time, Uncle Robert finally agreed to lend Walt and Roy $500 at 8% interest. Um, Roy recorded this loan and all the studio finances in a small, meticulous handwriting in a standard school series notebook. Now, Walt and Roy also moved out of Uncle Robert's house and rented an apartment near the studio. Roy was still convalescing from tuberculosis and would go home in the afternoon for a nap. And Roy would also do all the cooking so Walt could stay as late as possible at the studio to draw. In December, the brothers moved to a cheaper room for $15 a month in a boarding house just across the street from Uncle Robert. Now, a change in Margaret Winkler's personal life would ultimately lead to a significant change in the relationship between the Disney Brothers Studio and Winkler Productions in just a few years. Margaret Winkler married Charles B. Mintz, who was a film solicitor for Monmouth Film Corporation. And Margaret's brother, George, was now the office manager and would supervise productions out on the West Coast. Winkler Productions was still in contract negotiations with Pat Sullivan and his Felix the Cat cartoon series. Now, the second film, Alice Hunting in Africa, was sent to Winkler's, Winkler's Productions in January. The timing of the film in this was much improved, according to Miss Winkler, but she still believed more humor was needed. Please again, let me impress on you that future productions must be of a much higher standard than those we have already seen. She stated the other parts were satisfactory. Although we may believe the tone of Miss Winkler's are a bit patronizing in light of Walt's future success, Walt appeared to be grateful for her comments. Now, the live-action sequences for Hunting in Africa no longer exist, but after receiving payment for this film, the brothers repaid Uncle Robert for his loan with interest, $528.66. Now, the, as we were talking about, the Alice comedies were framed by live-action sequences before and after the animation, with a continuing cast of children that seemed to have more than a faint resemblance to the popular our Gang series by Hal Roach. Um, later, people it would be called Spanky and Our Gang. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the Disney brothers continued to increase their staff. They hired Hazel Bounds Sewell as an ink and painter. And her sister Lillian Bounds had recently moved to California and was looking for a job. And a friend of Hazel's, who was the aforementioned Kathleen Dollard, told Lillian about another opening at the studio by saying, I have a job for you, but I'm telling you about it on one condition. Don't vamp the boss. And kids, you're going to have to Google vamp. Since the studio was in walking distance from her home, Lillian decided to apply. She remembered meeting Walt for the first time. He didn't even have a suit. He was wearing a brown coat, sweater, raincoat, and pants. Lillian was hired on at $15 a week as an ink and painter, and would also double as Walt's secretary from time to time. Walt took a fancy to Lillian almost immediately. He would drive Lillian and Kathleen home each evening after work in his Ford runabout roadster. 
Lillian, recalling those days, said, When he started taking me home from work, then I began to look at him like he was somebody. Lillian realized Walt must have felt the same way when he started taking Kathleen home first, despite the fact that Kathleen lived farthest from the studio. Lillian said Walt was a wonderful man in every way, kind, gentle, brilliant, lots of energy and humility. Walt said Lillian was a good listener. I'd talk to her about what I hoped to do, and she'd listen. Lillian agreed. He was always talking about what he was going to do. He always wanted to do the talking. (laughs) His work was his conversation. He was always enthusiastic about everything. He never thought anything would turn out badly. If he didn't know about something, he would ask. Walt always remembered everything. Now, Walt's lack of a proper automobile and proper clothing made him hesitant to meet Lillian's family. So Roy and Walt agreed to each spend $35 on new suits. Walt bought two pants suit, a two-pant suit, and Roy had one pair of pants. Roy's cost $35 and Walt's $40. Walt always got the best, said Lillian. <laughs> when he came to my house, he wore the suit. It was great green and double-breasted, and he looked very handsome. When Walt met Lillian's family, he said, Well, how do you like my suit? (laughs) And Lillian said, My family liked him immediately. There was never any embarrassment about Walt. He met people easily. He was completely natural. One night, when Walt and Lillian were working late at the studio, Lillian was taking dictation when Walt suddenly leaned over and kissed her. Lillian blushed, which she said was customary in those days. (laughs) <laughs> the third the third film, Alice's Spooky Adventure, was already in production when Walt received Margaret Winkler's comments about Alice's Day at Sea. So it's not known how much her comments influenced this film. Now, since the live-action sequences no longer exist for the second film, this is where we meet the cast of children who appear in the first six of the Alice comedies. Now, these were neighborhood children Walt paid 50 cents a day. Some he persuaded to appear in the film just for fun and a token payment, which enabled Roy to get them to sign payment vouchers and a legal release. Now, Walt was hoping for a shorter production time for this film, but the live-action filming was delayed by cloudiness and fog because they were doing all the live-action filming in a vacant lot behind a billboard. Oh, okay. Near the studio. Yeah. So, so the film was not completed and shipped until February 22, 1923. So in this film, Sandlot baseball pitcher Alice enters an abandoned house to fetch a lost baseball because the other children fear it is full of spooks. In the house, Alice meets a black cat and is knocked unconscious by falling plaster. And then an animated dream sequence takes her to Spookville. Alice and an unnamed black cat attend an open-air concert performed by musical ghosts. The ghosts spot Alice and the cat when they interrupt their game of Mahjong and give chase. This is definitely a film of its time. Oh, yeah. Alice is awakened by 
a black cat licking her hand. And when she exits the house with the baseball, Alice is spotted by a police officer and hauled off to jail for breaking the window. So, Craig, now that, um, you know, now this is a little more developed, this film, than Alice's Day at Sea. So what are your thoughts on the on the technical progression of this film? I mean, technically speaking, it already went up leaps and bounds uh, by the fact that uh, this story itself, um, as you explained uh, throughout the uh, entire synopsis there, uh, you can already tell that there's a much deeper story than there was at Alice's Day at Sea. And uh, part of that is that there was a lot less live-action animation that needed uh, to be shot for it. Um, And the animation, while while still, uh, you know, nothing... Nothing spectacular, um, still very impressive for the means that they had to produce this stuff. Um, you know, it, it just all came together to tell a really good story. And uh, I, I genuinely believe in terms of the humor, you know, we've, we've been mentioning humor over and over again. Uh, I, I think this one does have a lot of good gags. Um, my favorite mm-hmm. one uh, being when Alice takes the question mark that pops up over her head. Uh, straightens it out into a stick and then uh, uses that as a weapon against all of the ghosts. Um, just very simple, but but taking that blend of animation into live action and then the timing that it took uh, in order to animate each one of those ghosts getting hit and you know eventually winding up on that pile where the cat's just basically counting them off one by one uh it's such you know nowadays i'm sure people would look at it thinking oh that's that's a simple gag to pull off but uh it it really took a lot of timing and effort in order to get it and uh even i feel like they got a, a better grasp on how to to bring out the humor in the live action uh portions um you know i i don't ever like to show my soft side but Alice at the end in jail wearing her uh, <laughs> her pinstripes. Um, yeah. A girl yeah, the, the always classic. has to pay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that just, was hilarious. Yeah, it's it works well. I really <laughs> yeah. enjoy this one. Granted, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a spooky guy. I, I enjoy ghosts. Anytime there's ever ghosts or the supernatural involved, I like it a little more. But this is just a very good, a, a very good uh, short film. Yeah, no, I agree, and yeah, and that you, that those word gags that you talk about, where they actually because in these rather than the intertitles, a lot of times the words appear right on this, the animation yeah. of the screen, like like the cartoon bubbles in comics, exactly. Word yes, and and that was a thing that Walt employed a lot as he went on was using those words as part of the gags, as part of the animation. Oh, yeah. They would um, use them and manipulate them and yeah, and things like that. So oh, it's yeah. very clever. Very clever, yes. <clears throat> well, like us, Margaret Winkler was very pleased with Alice's spooky adventure and wrote, I will be frank with you and say that I have been waiting for just such a picture as Alice's spooky adventure before using every effort to place it in all the territories throughout the world. Her only criticism was that some of the combined live action and animation was technically unsatisfactory and returned it to Walt to have it redone. 
So as Walt continued with the Alice series, he continued to improve his films. Margaret Winkler continued to freely offer her suggestions and well-intentioned criticism, and Walt accepted her comments graciously, but was also developing his own ideas on content and style. He politely responded, I am trying to comply with your instructions by injecting as much humor as possible. It is my desire to be a little different from the usual run of slapstick and hold the films to a more dignified line of comedy. And this is where we'll see the difference between the cartoons that Walt's creating and the cartoons that come out of New York as time goes on, especially when... when, um, Walt develops other characters that we're going to talk about in future episodes. The um, cartoons coming out of New York were much more base, shall we say, in their humor. Yes. And and definitely Walt would take the high road. He'd have more sophisticated humor, uh, much more clever humor um, than those other cartoonists. So he was already really trying to... um, separate himself and 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 create a very unique high quality product you know even in these very oh, early yeah. days absolutely so, completely yeah. agree now now one of the reasons margaret winkler may have praised Walt for the improvement in his films is because her contract with Pat Sullivan over Felix the Cat was still in dispute. Sullivan had gone to court to challenge his contract. And this may be the reason Margaret suggested to Walt that he should use, wherever possible in his cartoon stuff, a cat. And don't be afraid to let him do ridiculous things. Margaret may have thought she could use this as leverage against Sullivan if there was a popular cat, another popular cat in a series. Uh, Sullivan surprisingly saw through this and <laughs> took um, umbrage at this and was quite insulted. Yeah. Um, Walt had included an animated cat in his early features from his KC and Laughagram studios and in Alice's Wonderland, so he was open to the suggestion, but he was hesitant to overly exploit the cat due to the inevitable comparisons with Felix. Um, After appearing in Alice's Spooky Adventure, the cat would return in Alice's Fishy Story. Now, Walt's personal ideas about improving the Alice series were all about the animation. So to that end, Walt contacted Ub Iwerks, who had returned to his former job at United Film Ad in Kansas City after the failure of the Laughagram studio. And Walt persuaded him to move to California and join his new studio. Um, after much persistent on Walt's part, um, Ub agreed and arrived in July 1924. Um, the quality of the animation immediately improved. Oh, and, and just on a side note, Ub came out driving um, the Davis family car that they had left behind. Oh. Um, so it worked out really well. And then Walt would borrow the car in order to court Lillian. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, In an effort to improve the live-action scenes, uh, the Disney brothers changed photo labs and their method for inserting Alice into the animated scenes. And although Roy Disney had proved to be a 
gifted business manager, he had no skill behind the camera. Watt later said he could never master the cranking rhythm a cameraman must learn. So as a result, we ended up with a fluctuating tempo on the screen. So finally, I had to hire a real cameraman, and that did cost more money. Throughout 1924, Walt and his staff continued to improve the Alice series. Ub Iwerks devised a motor drive for the Pathé camera operated by a telegraph key, which allowed for more consistent exposure of the cartoon scenes. And a steadier tripod was utilized to overcome the unsteadiness of Alice in the combination scenes. Yeah. Now, in October, an Alice cartoon was presented in a first-run Broadway theater. Alice Gets in Dutch was shown in the new Piccadilly Theater with the Warner Brothers film This Woman. Walt was notified of this exciting news by Margaret Winkler's new husband, Charles Mintz. Walt was now corresponding almost exclusively with Charles and found that he was much more assertive than his wife. One of their differences involved the framing of the animation with the live-action Alice scenes. When Walt was the sole animator, he had to rely on the live-action scenes to frame the short animation sequences. Now that the Disney Brothers studio had expanded their animation staff, it was no longer necessary to depend on lengthy live-action scenes. Plus, Walt was now more interested in furthering his animation techniques. Mintz disagreed, and he insisted Walt retain the live-action scenes. However, after a year of producing the series, Walt had more self-confidence, and he wrote to Mintz, After all, these are cartoon comedies and not kid comedies. Animals afford a bigger opportunity for laughs than people. But if we have to put in a live-action opening and closing, I'm afraid it will just be another one of the ordinary. Mintz, due to Walt's persistence and some intervention by George Winkler, backed down. As a result, the Disney Brothers studio began to remove the framing live-action scenes from the Alice series. Now, Walt was especially proud of Alice the Toreador, which centered around animation rather than live action. So in this film, Alice the Toreador enters a bullfight competition, certain of winning after locating a docile sleepy bull. Her scheme sours, however, when a rival cat named Terrible Tom switches her bull with a fiery animal he has coaxed off a billboard advertisement. (laughs) So Terrible Tom fights Alice's docile bull, but the animal turns ferocious after being hurled onto cactus and chases Terrible Tom out of the ring. Alice is chased by Tom's fiery bull, but Alice's cat saves the day when he lures him out of the ring, disguises himself as a bull, and lets Alice win the match. So now, Craig, here is the first Alice where it's all animation with Alice inserted in this cartoon land. So what 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 do you think of this now new, you know, iteration of Alice in Cartoon Land. There's there's actually a lot of good to it. Um, it's 
you know, like all of these, there's there's a lot of entertainment value to it. I think this one uh, personally is is very very funny uh, throughout. Um, but I'm not even going to really focus on that so much. Is more or less. Um, if we really want to look at this as a te- from a technical standpoint, uh, one of the brilliant things that this this cartoon managed to do was not repeat a lot of the actions. So, um, and by that, I'm talking about think your classic Scooby Doo style, where it's just the characters running and the backgrounds moving, and you know that that's they animated the the simple sequence of them running and then it's just repeated over and over and over again it wasn't taken out um this was this really didn't have a lot of that repeat animation to try to save time save money save effort um there there was a lot of effort put into this film and and i think it pays off um and you you get to see just a stunning amount of animation in it with very very even little very little appearances from alice overall i mean Mm -hmm. she's in there um and but you know her her presence in this film is very minimal until the end when she starts taking on uh uh, terrible Tom, I believe from Toronto, if I'm recalling yes. correctly from when I watched it. So yeah. sorry, Canada. Um, <laughs> but you know, like when she finally does step up and have that big role, and when she's swinging Terrible Tom around and throwing him side to side, uh, you know, it, forget the fact that she's not in this as much because the the technique uh, to blend that animation with the live action together to make that whole sequence happen is just it's so worth it. Um, you know, you, you'll kind of have to watch it slow to, to try to figure out, uh, just how precise they had to be with their animation techniques on it. It's, it's, it's a great cartoon. Mm-hmm. It is. I agree. It's very well done. And, um, and, and that's a, a good observation how Alice's role as we're going to see over time in this series gets smaller and smaller yes yes as as walt and his staff because he's he already has a, a few more animators on staff by this time and um they just start focusing on the animation and less and less on live action but um yeah i thought this was definitely a, one of their breakthrough films in this series now, now Walt did compromise with Mintz's insistence on the cartoons being less plot-driven and to concentrate on more gags. And Mintz also wanted to keep the titles short and snappy, which Walt did. Walt did compromise with Mintz's insistence on the cartoons being less plot-driven and to concentrate more on gags. So, as, as you were talking about in this film, Craig... Um, Mintz also wanted Walt to keep the titles short and snappy, which Walt did. So despite these compromises, clashes between Walt and Mintz became more frequent. So George Winkler began serving as liaison between Winkler Productions and Disney Brothers Studio. Now, by the end of 1924, Walt was maturing as a filmmaker. The technique and animation for the Alice series was improving. The staff was more proficient at story development. The gags, rather than being simple and self-contained, were now more extended and complex. 
On December 31, 1924, the Disney Brothers Studio and Winkler Productions signed a new contract for a second series. This allowed Walt to finally believe for the first time all the work he had put in for years had finally paid off in establishing a successful animation studio. Now, the terms of the new contract would pay $1,800 per film for 18 Alice comedy films. This new contract allowed Walt and Roy to finally start paying themselves a salary of $50 a week, which they took on an irregular basis. However, there were some contract constraints. The Disney brothers were instructed to keep costs down. Of course, Walt was only interested in expanding and improving animation, so any budget cuts would not be made there. Now, Virginia Davis's contract for the first season had guaranteed her a monthly salary, and one of Walt's first letters to the Davises had proposed a monthly salary of $250 if there was a second series of Alice comedies. But Walt and Roy did not renew the contract for the second series, and instead proposed to pay Virginia only for the days she was actually she would actually be photographed. Since the live-action scenes were gradually being reduced, Walt thought all of the Alice's scenes for 1925 could be filmed in 18 days. And Virginia Davis recalled, My mother said, Never mind. Rather than negotiating, Walt and Roy began looking for another Alice. Now, Virginia Davis's acting career continued, and she found work in other films. In the late 1930s, she did return to the Disney studio, working in the ink and paint department and doing occasional vocal work. Um, if next time you watch Pinocchio, which is um, being released um, shortly, um, re-released again, yes, she um, she did a lot of the voices for the boys on Pleasure Island. Oh, really? Yeah, in the background. Um, and and Miss Davis was named a Disney legend in 1998. Um, the Disneys hired a professional child actress named Dawn Paris, who worked under the name Dawn O'Day. And she starred in Alice's Eggplant before moving on to other projects. Since she was the sole income provider for her family, Disney's terms were unacceptable. She legally changed her name to Anne Shirley, and she went on to enjoy a very successful acting career. Now, in Alice's eggplant, Julius, who is the harsh taskmaster of Alice's poultry farm, receives an order from Alice to deliver 5,000 eggs to Sinkum and Sokum Poultry and Egg Farm. But a rooster named Little Red Hensky, who is a Bolshevik agitator, persuades the hens to strike. Now, to raise the necessary eggs, Alice sponsors a prize fight between two roosters and charges each customer, who all happen to be the striking chickens, um, one egg as the price of admission. So, Craig, again, now we're seeing more gags, a longer storyline, and we have a new Alice, Dawn Harris. So what do you think of um, this um, now, this new version of Alice in Cartoon Land. Yeah, I mean, as, as far as Don Paris goes, um, you know, the the shots are always kept very wide. There's not a lot of the uh, <laughs> the close up uh, shots that they would they would do with Virginia Davis um, to really get it. So, you know, unless you know there's a different Alice there, you're, you're not going to notice that right from the uh, right from the onset of it. Um, you know, this one just 
while there are more gags and uh you know that the animation is clearly better uh even though this was all made like very shortly within each other uh within the same time period you you can definitely tell uh with each one that there is more new original animation over and over again they don't they don't stay as long on scenes as they did in past ones you know going back to uh, the previous one we discussed you know the the back half of it uh solely took place in the in the ring whereas in, in this cartoon you know they kind of change up the scenes as you go throughout uh, the entire cartoon but um for some reason i feel like this one a lot of the humor might have been more or less centered around uh the plot of it and uh what was happening at that time in the world with america with uh with unions and striking and Mm -hmm. all of that so uh, a lot of it's you know not necessarily lost on our culture today um it, it definitely i don't think it has the same humor that it would have back in that day yeah it definitely has political overtones yeah as i was saying to what was going on in this country and um in europe yeah you know at the time and so uh yeah so yeah it, it was an interesting <laughs> it was an interesting one definitely yes yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> But definitely, uh, the, you can see the quality of the animation continue to improve. Uh, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Now, the Disneys then selected a young girl who had appeared in Alice Solves the Puzzle, a four-year-old Margie Gay. She was very different in appearance, as you observed, um, by sporting a stylish hair bob rather than the long curls of Virginia Davis and Dawn O'Day. And, and Margie Gay would actually go on to portray Alice in the most number of times even though Virginia Davis is the uh, the one we identify yes. as Alice it's really Margie Gay who portrayed Alice the most yeah now the changes in the series weren't limited to live action in the animation world the black cat who now had the name of Julius was developing a full rounded out personality and as Walt would continue to focus more on the animation, Julius would take on more of the action and would generally save the day for Alice. Julius would be only one of a stable of recurring animated characters that included a canine cop, a dashhund who would continue appearing in the Oswald and Mickey Mouse short films, and the villain Bootleg Pete, who would become Pegleg Pete before the end of the silent era. So, Julius Cat. So, the next time, folks, if you're Disney California Adventure and you're walking down Buena Vista Street and you see that sign on the window, Julius Cat's Photography, you know where that name came from. Yep. Yeah. Now, Walt continued to expand his animation staff with the arrival of his staff from Kansas City, including Rudy Ising, Hugh Harmon, his brother Walker Harmon, and Max Maxwell. Now, from this point... The stories and animations start to take on what we now consider Disney quality. Some of the gags and stories developed for the Alice series would be reworked later for the Mickey Mouse series. Meanwhile, Walt and Roy's close living arrangements were beginning to get on their nerves. As Roy remembered it, it came to the point where Walt didn't like my cooking. Well, he just walked out on my meal one night and I said okay to hell with you if you don't like my cooking let's quit this business 
<laughs> meaning living together. So I wrote my girl in Kansas City and suggested she come out and we get married, which she did. I believe um, Edna, <laughs> Edna said in her response in the telegram, hell yes. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Walt recalled... When Roy told me he was going to be married, I realized that I'd need a new roommate. So I proposed to Lily. Lily Lillian said she teased Walt that the reason he asked me to marry him so soon after Roy married Edna was that he needed somebody to fix his meals. Oh, to be there in the simple days. I know. <laughs> I know. But I, I love how it. They, you can just see how they all had these this playful relationships. Yeah, yeah it's with great. Each other. And Walt would later say that Lillian was such a bad secretary that he had to marry her. <laughs> um, the new animation talent increased the quality of the films, but also meant the Disney Brothers studio had outgrown their offices. On July 6, 1925, Walt and Roy put a deposit down on a vacant lot at 2719 Hyperion Avenue in Hollywood, and soon construction began on a new studio. The Hyperion Studio site would see the creation of Oswald the Rabbit, Mickey Mouse, the Silly Symphonies, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This would not be a converted office, but a studio designed and built specifically for animation, and the Alice comedies made it possible. Although Walt and Roy had anticipated they would need 18 days to film all the Alice live-action scenes in 1925, it would take considerably less time due to the greater emphasis on the animated scenes. They were now able to film the live-action scenes for three days in one day, for three films in one day, I should say. Mm-hmm. George Winkler, who was an experienced cameraman, was now doing the live-action filming and continuing to serve as the liaison between Mintz and the Disneys. He was also doing work on a camera work or photography work on a film for Warner Brothers at the same time. Now, tensions continued between Charles Mintz and Walt Disney. Mintz was especially irritated by the fact that the original Alice's Wonderland had been sold to the New York branch of Pictorial Clubs in January 1924, who was now showing the film in non-theatrical venues to recoup its investment. Their relationship became openly hostile when Walt was unable to keep up with delivering a new film every three weeks. This had started when Walt was the only studio artist and he'd never been able to catch up. With the addition of new staff, Walt finally came closer to meeting the deadlines and offered his artists a bonus for every film completed ahead of schedule. Then, (laughs) Mintz became even angrier when the films began arriving earlier, (laughs) especially when Walt made it clear he expected prompt payment upon delivery. Don't you think it is about time for you to put on your brakes, wrote Mintz, who pointed out the three-week interval between films called for in their contract. Walt argued there was a more important clause, the one requiring delivery of all 18 films by January 15, 1926, and his increased staff necessitated a payroll that could not be met with payments in three-week intervals. Now, Roy and Edna were married on April 11, 1925, at Uncle Robert's house. Walt was the best man and Lillian the maid of honor. The couple, with Edna's mother, honeymooned at the Hotel del Coronado in San Diego. That was an interesting honeymoon. 
<laughs> I imagine. Um, Walt sported a new look for the wedding. He had grown a mustache. Lillian recalled that Walt grew it because he and Ub, the Harmon boys, and Rudolph Ising made a bet. They all grew mustaches. Walt wanted to shave it off later, but we didn't let him. On June 13, 1925, Walt and Lillian were married in the home of Lillian's brother, who was the fire chief of Lewiston, Idaho. The couple honeymooned at Mount Rainier National Park and in Seattle before returning to Los Angeles in early August. Around the same time, the New York Supreme Court heard the Mintz's case against Pat Sullivan. The Minces argued their original contract and second contract with Sullivan prevented him from contracting with another distributor for the Felix the Cat series. In late July, the court found in favor of Sullivan, and the Minces appealed the ruling. On August 3rd, Pat Sullivan placed an ad in the Film Daily announcing his legal victory. The new distributor of Felix the Cat would be the Educational Film Corporation of America. During Walt and Lillian's honeymoon, production on Alice Chops the Suey commenced. The special effects in this film included the lightning sketch animation technique Walt used in some of the Newman laughograms, with a photograph of a hand appearing to quickly sketch items like an ink bottle onto which Alice and Julius jump. Another effect was the use of an animated Alice performing stunts. The live action could not realistically, the live actors could not realistically perform, like the jumping in and out of an ink bottle. And this animation was done by Ub Iwerks. Mm-hmm. Now, in Alice Chops the Suey, Alice, performed by Margie Gay, and Julius the Cat spring to life from an ink bottle. Uh, and this is very similar to the Out of the Inkwell series. Um, as well. Yes, yes, um, very. An evil rat kidnaps Alice and carries her off in a bag to Chinatown. Whilst in pursuit, Julius disguises himself and eventually retrieves the bag containing Alice. Julius escapes on a unicycle with the bag as the rat and his accomplices giving chase. And Alice and Julius jump back into the ink bottle to escape. This was an interesting film. <laughs> yeah. So, Craig, what are your thoughts on this and on Margie Gay? Uh, Alice? I'll, I'll ignore the plot for the most part in uh, talking about this. Um, in, in speaking of Margie Gay, um, I, I actually really enjoy her as Alice. I think she almost uh, starts to embody uh, more of the flapper style um, mm-hmm. that a lot of people insinuate or just as you know they they think of when they're thinking about the 20s um right i feel like she really embodied that and so i i enjoy her as that um the two things i take away from this cartoon um again animation is slowly taking over getting more and more impressive um and alice is barely in this one again uh, the, the scene she is in are very, very memorable because of those special effects that you just mentioned. Um, starting off with uh, with her being covered in ink and shaking it all off and watching that effect mm-hmm. kind of happen. And uh, it's, it, you know, it, a very good use. But um, it, when you're watching this one, pay attention to the fact that 
uh, backgrounds are almost completely ignored for it. I know a lot of it is because of the uh, the transfer. You know, it's it's hard keeping these looking exactly like they did way back when but you can specifically tell on this one that uh, they were really working on the characters themselves getting as much as they could out of the animation making sure the gags were very character driven uh, whether it's julius uh, you know turning his tail into a unicycle and kind of using that as a as a mode of transportation or or whatever have you but um you know you in in other ones you were kind of focusing on the surroundings that they were in with this one they really wanted to focus you on the character and the uh the second thing i looked at in this one uh was what you already mentioned um the the technique with the hand sketching everything out and in my opinion um i i can't prove this one way or another but to me this is this is a technique then that you saw heavily used in um in monty python uh like the Mm -hmm. hand just popping out it is that's the first thing in my head that i think of is that is the same exact technique that they kind of used with their animation um and you know it's it's brilliant i would not be at all surprised if this was part of their inspiration on how they they did uh how they did their work but it's cool to see you know the the kind of the original technique in action and then watch how it transformed over the years so while it's not super impressive uh as of this day it's very very cool to still watch it it's true and and uh when you do watch this film who sort of alluded to it that the character depictions and the storyline do not hold up well (laughs) today its depiction of asian people are very much uh the attitude of the time yes of the 1920s and so you have to watch this with that in that historical context you need your leonard malton introduction before you sit down and watch it where he assures you that it's a film of its time Absolutely, you do, and and so it's not that people were racist back then. That was just just the way people thought. Yeah. Those were people's attitudes in the 1920s, and like everything else, they evolved over time. Exactly. And so anyway, now late in 1925, Charles Mintz finalized a deal with Joseph Kennedy's company, Film Booking Offices in Boston, to distribute films nationally rather than state-by-state, as the Mintz Company had been doing. Um, The FBO deal guaranteed Mintz more money, prestige, and visibility. It also placed some heavy financial demands on him and specified that no films would be released before September 1st, 1926. So Mintz wrote the Disney Brothers asking if they wanted to be a part of this deal. And after a very drawn-out and heated negotiations, uh, an agreement between Mintz and the Disney's was reached. And, and, and the, the letters between them still exist, and it got, it, it got really intense between mm. Walt and Charles Mintz. And um, anyway, but they, they finally did reach an agreement. Contracts were signed in February 1926. And although Walt had to deal with a long delay before future films would be released, when they were released, it meant they would be viewed by a much larger audience. 
Now, the terms of the new contract called for 26 Alice comedies, with the first 13 to be delivered in three-week intervals, and the second 13 in two-week intervals. Disney's first flat payment per film was lowered from $1,800 to $1,500, but thereafter, the Disney Brothers Studio would receive a percentage of the profits. Walt also, also insisted that all matters regarded making of the comedies are left to me. Now, Mintz's main concern was quality due to the new status acquired with the FBO contract. Now, the new contract did attempt to ease the financial strains caused by the long release dates with a $900 per um, per film um, due upon delivery and a $600 due um, within 90 days of delivery. But much of Disney's income was dependent on the projected profits, which were still far in the future. So Disney took on additional side projects to bring in some much-needed funds, such as creating animated titles for Leon Schlesinger and a second dental care film for Dr. McCrum in Kansas City titled Clara Cleans Her Teeth. Mm-hmm. Now, in early May, FBO asked Disney to stop including the animated word gags in the film that we talked about earlier. Yes, yes. The the only English words they wanted on the screen were the intertitles, which could be easily replaced by translations. Another artist from Kansas City was hired, Isidore Frizz Freeling, and this was his first experience at, as a, in a professional animation studio. He would later become one of the leading directors at the Schlesinger Warner's animation studio. And Freeling was paired with Ub Iwerks and quickly developed a deep respect for um, Ub and his talent. Now, Freeling particularly remembers an incident working on Alice's Picnic when he had been assigned a scene of a mother cat referred to in the synopsis as Mrs. Julius um, washing her kittens. The point of the scene was a gag in which she dried the kittens by running them through a ringer. And the washing action itself was perfunctory. Um, All the script said was a mother cat bathing the kittens. So I did the scene, and I added one little kitten crawling out of the tub. And a couple of them are trying to escape. And this was just ad-libbed in there. And then Walt called that to everybody's attention. He says, I want you to see this scene, he says. That little kitten didn't just jump out of the water. He climbed up and hung there and dropped down like a little kid would do. He says, Frizz did it this way and made him act like a little kid. That's what I want to see in the pictures. I want the characters to be somebody. I don't want them to just be a drawing. So this is an example of one of Walt's most important contributions to the art of animation, personality animation that we had talked about earlier. Yes. Now, The Three Little Pigs, that was produced in 1933, is considered to be the first cartoon um, distinguishing the characters by their personalities. But I think this story, related by Frizz Freling, um, shows Walt was thinking about personality animation you know, as early as 1926. Yeah, if not earlier, honestly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah. Now, in the summer of 1926, Walt suggested to Mintz that their publicity should take advantage of the studio's recent move to the new Hyperion studio. 
This most likely led to a studio still shot showing um, Watt with his drawing board, Margie Gay, and various animal cast members from the Alice comedies walking to the doorway of the new Hyperion studio. And that's a pretty famous um, shot. Yeah. Now, Walt and Roy also began construction of their neighboring homes on Lyric Avenue, several blocks from the Hyperion studio. And these are the first homes Walt and Roy had owned. Two months earlier, Walt and Roy had each put $200 down on the lots in Silver Lake at the edge of the Los Feliz Hills. And remembering those days, Roy said, In 26, we bought this lot, about 50 by 150 feet, on Lyric Avenue near St. George Street. It was on a side street. We built two houses. They were the ready-cut type of houses. The lot and the houses cost us $16,000. The kid homes were the Pacific ready-cut models, and the houses were each 2,000 square feet, and Walt thought the cost was exorbitant. Now, the end of 1926 brought a few changes to the Alice comedies. First, the casting of Lois Hardwick as Alice in Alice's Circus Days, who was a well-known child actor. For some unknown reason, George Winkler, who is now the supervisor of production for Winkler Productions, decided to replace Margie Gay. Mintz was outraged that Hardwick was hired without his knowledge until Walt reminded him that he had seen the screen tests and signed off on Lois. Now, in Alice's circus days, Alice and Julius are circus acrobats competing for the crowd's attention with a comic sideshow and a lion taming act. High above the high wire, Julius balances Alice on a stack of chairs. And as the chairs collapse due to Julius's smoking habit, (laughs) um, Julius rescues the falling Alice using a tall stepladder. So again, now we're Craig. We're seeing the the story and the gags, you know, develop become yeah. more complex in this film. So, what do you think of this film and the performance of what would be the final Alice, Lois Hardwick? Yeah, Lois. Um, you know, I she she did well. Um, again, not that much of a role in uh, in the film and. Uh, parts of her role are performed by an animated version of her as well, so uh, that's that's even less of her in it. Um, I, I, this cartoon is is actually really great, and a lot of it comes down to uh, the details involved. So uh, the last last one we talked about, I, I mentioned how little background was in there. It was mostly focused on developing these characters, uh, and then this is almost like the the ultimate version where you have that 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 personality of these characters just really coming out uh gags are hitting every single note but then you have these well thought out environments everything's happening on there uh this is just the detail that went into making this all come together it's it's very brilliant uh that's that's the highest compliment i can give to uh, alice's circus days it's just detail there's so much there Mm -hmm. oh absolutely yeah it's actually visually it's it's really well it's really nice to look at and it really it holds up well oh yeah yeah, absolutely does yeah no this um is you know i well, we'll get into more of our final thoughts here in just a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, if you're if you're struggling 
getting through these. You can't deal with the crudeness of some of the animation. Maybe maybe start towards the end with this mm-hmm. one, um, and and then work your way back because um, I this it's a very easy to watch film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, Walt was feeling increasingly restricted by the format of the Alice comedies. Uh, he pretty much at this point believed he had gone as far as he could go with the series. The films were becoming more and more about Julius the Cat and less and less about Alice. Walt's heart was now in animation, and he wished to be free from the restrictions imposed by the Alice series. Um, Disney and Mintz agreed this would be the last season for the Alice comedies. Charles Mintz also agreed that the next series would be fully animated, and it would not be centered around a cat. Um, By this time now, the the Mintzes were producing the, um, uh, the Crazy Cat um, series as well, yeah, um, th- which was very popular in its day. Um, the final cartoon in the Alice comedy series, Alice in the Big League, was released on August twenty second, nineteen twenty seven. In January nineteen twenty seven, Mintz wrote Walt. I am negotiating with a national organization, and they seem to think there are too many cats on the market. <laughs> um, Mintz later revealed the national organization was Universal Pictures, and they had ordered that the new character was to be a rabbit. Margaret Winkler thought Walt could work on this proposed animated series as a follow-up to the animated uh, to the Alice comedies, and Walt and Ub Iwerks immediately began working on rabbit designs well before production on the Alice comedy ceased. And that is where we'll pick up our story in our continuing history of Walt Disney's animated films. So, uh, Craig, what are what? So, finally, to sort of looking back on the Alice comedies, not only in the history of the Walt Disney Studio, but in in the history of the film industry. What what, what do you what, where do you think they fit? I think they are absolutely necessary uh in any in any fan of uh disney and history they're absolutely necessary to watch to study to uh to learn um you know when we think about uh the pre-mickey time period a lot of people will jump uh they they'll stay away from alice they'll jump straight to oswald um which we will get to oswald as well here very very soon um but you know these Alice comedies; they are they are brilliant. They are so important. Uh, it's just I I can't highly recommend enough that people uh, give them a fair share of time. Uh, you know, sitting here watching them, it, it for some reason it just makes me want to be sitting uh, on Buena Vista Street at Disney California Adventure <laughs> and just soaking in that that kind of time period, that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and I, I just I, I love them. I, I hope everyone enjoys them as much as I know you and I both do. Definitely, and they're they're readily available. They yes. um, they are out there. They've been released in in um, oh I don't know were they, I think they were one of the Disney Treasure series. I yes. know the yep. I know the Walt Disney Family Museum has a DVD of some of them. So they're they're on YouTube. A number of them. So they're out there. Yes. And yeah, as 
As proof of their popularity, the Alice comedies were reissued shortly after the advent of sound. Uh, Some of the 1925 titles, which include the last few Virginia Davis films, the single Don Paris film, and the first several Margie Gay films were reissued by the Raytone Company after it added music and sound effects. Now, 40 of the 50 Alice comedies produced in California from 1923 to 1927 survive, including all 12 reels from the first season of Alice, starring Virginia Davis, and produced on Kingswell Avenue, all 18 reels from season two, all starring Margie Gay, except for two starring Virginia Davis and one starring Don Paris, and then all of which were made on Kingswell Avenue, and then nine of the 26 season three reels survive, and three of Lois Hardwick's 10 reels survive. So, now, now many um, books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Walt Disney, an American original by Bob Thomas, Walt Before Mickey, Disney's Early Years, 1919 to 1928 by Timothy S. Susannan. Walt in Wonderland, The Silent Films of Walt Disney by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. The Man, The Magic, The Memories by the Walt Disney Family Museum. And Craig will have links to all these in our show notes. And Craig will also have a link um, to YouTube where there's a few of the... um, you can see some of the surviving Alice comedies, uh, including the ones we've talked about. Yep. Some of the quality is not the greatest. Um, some of the surviving films contain Dutch intertitles, or, <laughs> the, or, or they're the versions reissued by the Raytone Company with added music and effects tracks, so, which aren't always the, the, the best quality. Yeah, but still, please, 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 give it a chance. Um, oh yeah, you know, sit through, uh, put put the effort in. Um, it, it's very, very worth it. I I can't stress that enough. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Finally, Craig and I have received a number of positive comments about last week's Disney 101 Books episode. Um, Craig provided links to all the books in our show notes. One of our listeners, Jim, was kind enough to write in to let us know about Amazon's Kindle Unlimited service. So for a nominal monthly subscription, you can check out up to 10 books at a time. And Jim reports they offer a large number of Disney-related books, including some of the ones we recommended in our Disney 101 books episode. So that might be an easy way to get a hold of some of the books Craig and I talked about. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So please join us next time for episode 27 of Connecting with Walt, in which Craig and I take you on a safari through the darkest regions of the Magic Kingdom's Adventureland. So, Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network? Uh, Of course, you can be finding me uh, every Tuesday on the Disney World Edition podcast and every Thursday on the Universal Edition podcast every Friday, not only on Connection with Waltz when we are in season, but sometimes on Diz Pop talking about movies and, of course, on the Diz Daily Fix. And... But yeah, I guess every now and then I pop up on the Dreams Unlimited Travel Show, too. I'm mm-hmm. the life of the producer. I have to you be gotta, pulled in ten different directions at once. That's right. So you've <laughs> got to start coming on the Disneyland show every once in a while, just so that it's the whole 
I don't know. Trifecta is not the word. Hey, I, I've done, I think, two episodes now of the Disneyland edition. So yeah. I'm, I'm proud of those episodes that I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're always welcome. I guess I'm speaking for Tom Bell, the host and producer. But yeah. <laughs> And speaking of which, you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends, Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. Listen to us live on Mixler at 7 p.m. Pacific time, Disneyland time, and be sure to stay for the blue hour you can download our two weekly shows from itunes each monday if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of walt disney his studio his imagineers and disneyland check out our disneyland podcast archives for my disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of connecting with walt on itunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>